Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. Uh, as Calvin said, I'm DG, I'm the youth pastor here, and uh, I started this talk this morning. So if you want to catch it up on our Facebook page or listen to the podcast later this week, uh, it's talking through this idea of, of things that are subject to change, and it starts with a question. I'll do the, the, the fast-forward version kind of uh, from where we started this morning. The question that I put out to the people who were there this morning is, what is the greatest lie that is told daily, in fact, probably hourly, by people in this room and by so many other people all around the Western world, we tell it, but does anybody want to throw a guess as to what you think the greatest lie is? This next thing I get will make me happy. This next thing I get will make me happy. That is our lie, but I don't think it's the most commonly told greatest lie ever. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. A whole nother message. <laughs> but there is so much to unpack in that. And isn't that true? Isn't that a lie that we tell each other? How are you going? I'm fine. That's not really, I was going for a slightly more lighthearted answer, but it is probably more widespread <laughs> than I'm fine or this next thing is going to make me happy. The lie we tell ourselves, I hereby acknowledge that I have read and understood the terms and conditions. It's a load of trash. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. And just because I am a nerd, I looked up the terms and conditions of a bunch of the things that you use and claim to have read and understood the terms and conditions of. So if you're an Instagram or Snapchat user, there's a few thousand words that you haven't read that outline that anything you upload to their services belongs to them now, not you which means they can take your Instagram photos of your dinner and they can put that on a billboard in Uzbekistan and there ain't nothing you can do to stop them. And it's scary. But if you really want to get into how long and how brilliant terms and conditions are, you've got to go to iTunes. Everybody, you know, if you've got an iPhone or you use iTunes or iCloud, iOS, anything like that, you are in the tens of thousands, 19,000 words, nearly 20,000 words in the iTunes terms and conditions. That's longer than Macbeth. And again, you haven't read any of it, but iTunes is a service that you use all the time, right? Uh, except for the part where you've clicked. I uh, hereby acknowledge that I have read and understood the terms and conditions. If you want to absolutely win at terms and conditions, you've got to go to PayPal or Amazon. They are in the 30,000 bracket, 38,000 words in Amazon, 36,000 words in PayPal. So if you've used that service and you haven't read those terms and conditions, come on, you lied. You lied. Um, for the sake of comparison with Shakespeare again, uh, Hamlet, 30,000 words. PayPal, 38,000 words. If you want a short read, pick Hamlet. <laughs> Don't pick the T's and C's. And all of those terms and conditions, and this is what really frustrates me and probably really frustrates you because you know it's in there, even though you haven't read it, they all say, we reserve the right to change these terms and conditions at any time, and we don't have to tell you ahead of time, which we all say that is totally unfair, but if you have lived any kind of life, and you guys all have, you know that that is totally how life works. So much of life is subject to change. There are things that you can see coming, there are things that you can look forward to, and then there are other things in life that just blindside you. They just come out of nowhere. 
And so the idea of the series was to take a day and go, how do we live in a world? How do we have faith? What can we put hope in, in a world where so much can change and so much does change? And so this morning, you can kind of start with that because what I know is, is true for me and, and is true for you is that there is a next coming for you and odds are you're excited about it. And it might be several months off as you're kind of looking into 2019. Maybe that's the end of university, beginning of your full-time job career or your first full-time job. Maybe at the end of this year, you're wrapping out a contract and you are moving to another country to take up another job. Maybe you are getting married this wedding season. Maybe you've got friends who are getting married and they are all kinds of excited about that. But there's always, for all of us, there's some kind of next that we are looking forward to. And like I said, there's all those ones that totally blindside us. But I, I, I kind of like this chart because this is true for no matter what kind of change you're in, right? Whenever there is something next, whenever you're headed for a change, there's always a transition where you are somewhere, you leave somewhere, and then you go to where you're headed. And we as, as people often tend to live in these transition bits. Like before we even get to where we're going, we're already thinking about where we're going to go after we get to the place where we're headed. And that is a too long a sentence to have said out loud. But every time we're in a season of transition, every time we're headed for change, there's always stress, even in the ones that we're excited about, even in the ones that we are looking forward to. Um, the classic example I used this morning is the day before you got married, you were excited, but you were stressed. Or your first day of school, your parents were excited, but they were stressed. There's a, a story of one of my friends, their five-year-old started school at the beginning of last term, and they had this amazing time sending him off to school. It's their, their only child, and so he toddles off, and the backpack is bigger than he is, and it's this most adorable moment. And he comes back from school, jumps in the car. Mum and Dad have been freaking out all day about how he's going to go with it. And how was school? How was school? He said, well, I didn't learn how to read, and you said that I would learn how to read, and there were so many other kids there, I don't think I'm going back. That was the end of his first day of school, and that started a whole new level of stress as they tried to go for day number two. So what I want to talk about tonight is in a world where, and, and in your life, where there is so much that is subject to change, can you really, and is there any point in preparing for what's next? What can you set up now as a means of preparation that is going to set you up for success next? Before we kind of jump into it, a couple of, of quick truths that I want you just to kind of hold on to in the back of your mind as we go through this. In any sort of season of change, in any sort of transition, this is true. Wherever you go, there you are. That no matter what happens in life, no matter where you go, no matter who you get married to, no matter what country you move to, we kind of have to drop the assumption that things will change, I will change when I get there. Because you are still going to be you when you get there. You are still going to be you when you get married. You are still going to be you when you take that job or when you grow into that new role. And the reason this is, this is why preparation is super important, because you can have a plan and you can have a promise, but if you could be the better version of you now, you will be the better version of you when you get there. Wherever you go, there you are. And there is absolutely no correlation between knowing what is next and being prepared for what's next. There's a difference. And again, you just talk to anybody who's taken a child home from hospital after 
you know, the baby's been born, the child's going home from hospital, you know what is coming next, and you've read all of the books, and you've made a plan, and you kind of have an idea of what's going to happen, but there really isn't anything that prepares you for that season of life. And, and, and maybe you've experienced this, where you've gone on a Saturday afternoon to a beautiful location, or a Friday, or maybe on a Sunday, and you've watched two of your closest friends, maybe you've done this yourself, make vows to one another. They promise one, to one another. I do, they say. And then you get to where I am five years down, or where some people are more than five years down, and you really know that I do is more of an I can't, or I, I will try really hard to, but I can't, and then there's this doubt of if I can't, maybe she can't, or maybe he can't. But I think what I want to talk about tonight is this idea that you can, this is why preparation is really important. Marriage preparation is something that is, if you are looking at getting married, do the alpha pre-marriage course. Do uh, some sort of conversation beforehand. Prepare for that, because better than a plan, better than a promise, better than I do, is being prepared. So, we're going to head to James tonight. A letter right towards the kind of the end of the New Testament. James had a famous older brother. You probably know him. It was Jesus. And before we get into James and what James has to say, here is why I love that we have a letter from James that is in our New Testament, because it just shows the validity of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Because if you are going to be Jesus's little brother, what is it going to take for your older brother to convince you that he is God? Because this is what happened with James. James wasn't one of Jesus' 12 disciples. James thought his brother was crazy. And he watched his brother be crucified and went, I kind of saw it coming. What a waste. This is my brother. And I love him to bits. But I always knew that it was probably going to end up somewhere like this. And then three days later, James had the experience that Jesus said, you will have. I'm coming back. And James and Jesus have lunch. And everything changed for James in that moment. And he, be, he, he went on to become the, the church leader for all of Jerusalem. He was the guy. And so we have a letter from him. So think about it. What would it take for your older brother or your older sister to convince you that they are the son of God? What would it take for you to call your older brother or your older sister their Lord? I have an older sister. I don't think I could do it. But then again, she hasn't predicted her own death and resurrection and pulled it off. So I don't have to. But James had a brother who did that, pulled it off. And so I think we can trust what Jesus said, because if James can trust what Jesus said and did, I feel like I could trust it. But that's not where we're going tonight. So, James, here is the end. This is the end of where I'm going to head with James tonight, all right? You will be blessed in what you do. If you do what James is going to suggest and what I'm going to suggest that you do as you go through a season of transition, as you prepare for change, you will be blessed in what you do. You'll be blessed in a future season. So, here we go. This is the very beginning. James 1, 22. Do not merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. And James writes, listen, because back in this day and age, you know, the first century as James is writing this, this isn't, you know, remember, like, this isn't hundreds of years after Jesus. This is, you know, within decades. You know, James was Jesus's brother, and so he is still alive writing this. James and Jesus are alive at the same time. So back then, this was how people engaged with Scripture. It wasn't read by them because they were mainly illiterate, and it was 
you know, rare to have a copy of Scripture anyway. Nobody had their own copies like you and I do. We have you know, several copies of the Bible at home, or I have all of the translations of it on my phone in my pocket, but they didn't have that back then. And so you would go to a small group, you'd go to a home, or you'd go to a synagogue, or if you lived in Jerusalem, you'd go to the temple and someone would read it out loud to you. And so we could change this for us. Do not merely read the word and deceive yourself. Don't just... Don't be foolish enough to think that simply by hearing the word or reading your Bible or coming to church and hearing somebody else read the Bible to you, don't think that that's going to make any difference because we know that that isn't true. Instead, James adds these four words that really hurt to see. You actually have to do what it says. The goal isn't just knowledge. It's not just knowing what it says or what the Bible has in it. It's not good enough just to know what Jesus said. It's not good enough. You could just kind of sit there at the Sermon on the Mount and be in the audience and have Jesus preach all of these things. And then you go away and go, well, at least I know what he said. That was fantastic. But actually, you have to apply that. The goal, I think, is life change. And I think this will help. And then this comes my favorite part. I think it's my favorite illustration in the whole Bible, certainly in the New Testament. Anyone who listens, and this includes us, because we are anyone, anyone who listens or reads the word but does not do what it says, and if you grew up in church, you know what this metaphor is. Anyone who reads the Bible or who listens to preaching or who comes to church and watches a message like this on Facebook or whatever and doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Anyone who reads the word and doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at a mirror, sees his or her face, and then after that goes away forgetting what he looked like. We don't do this. You haven't done this. This morning when you got up and tomorrow morning when you get up, you will, within minutes of waking up, look at a mirror, probably in your bathroom, maybe in your bedroom or in the hallway before you leave. You will look and it won't just be a casual glance especially if it's the sort of the first thing that you do when you get up in the morning, you will look and you will go, what happened? How did all of this take place? And then you will react. You will brush your teeth. You maybe will brush your hair or you do what I do and you grab a beanie and you decide today's going to be a hat day and it's going to be fine. I, will wear the, I wear this beanie every day from Easter through Labor Weekend. Haven't brushed my hair in six months. Coming up in one more week, I have to take the beanie off, and then it goes through the washing machine for the first time in six months. That's not true. It gets washed every couple of months. I'm married now, so I have to wash it. But you make a change, right? You see what needs to be fixed, and you respond accordingly. A mirror requires a response. You look at what you're wearing. You look at makeup. You put the little dot stuff over the acne. You shave your facial hair if it's getting a little unruly. You trim, you tidy, you kind of make it better. And this is how long you stay in front of a mirror. I could tell you exactly how long you stay there. You stay there until it's good. You stay there until you are satisfied with what you see when it looks back at you. A mirror requires a response, and you stay there until it's at least better enough that you can get away with it. Because if you just looked at a mirror and then just wandered on, you would get to work and your boss would tell you there is no way you can serve customers looking like that. There is no way that you can see a client and make a pitch looking like that. Before I came here to preach, before I you know, was doing sound before for, for worship, but beforehand I checked the, bar, the, the mirror here 
because they didn't want stuff in my teeth, because that would be idiotic. You check. You check and you stay there until it's better. You always have to do a response. You will do this tomorrow and every day. You wake up, you look at a mirror, and you react to what you see. And so why is it any different for church? Why is it any different with how you read your Bible? Because you don't get credit for looking at a mirror. It's not like you can go to work tomorrow having woken up, looked at a mirror, done nothing, and you just rock up at uni or at work and said, well, I looked in the mirror. Surely, right? That's, that's, I, I did, I looked. And yet we somehow have it in our head that this is okay when it comes to our faith. This is, this is okay when it comes to church. That I, Coming to church was fine. I was here. I listened. I read my Bible this morning. And yet it doesn't actually change anything in us. And I think that's sort of what James is getting at. We do this all the time. We see something and we do nothing. And if you form this habit, I think this is what James would get at. As you approach a season of change, as you want to prepare for whatever is coming next, whether it's something that is exciting for you, again, you're getting married, you're starting a new job, you're growing into whatever that next chapter is, starting uni, whatever, or it's something that's going to come out of nowhere and blindside you. You're going to lose your job. The, the relationship you're in that you thought was going to last for ages collapses around you. Your, your parents get divorced and it seems to you to come just out of nowhere. You lose a loved one. All those sorts of things. The way you handle that is so much more based on how you prepare for it. And it's going to have nothing to do with how you looked. And in fact, the amount of time you spend looking at a mirror and making yourself look good, surely you would want to put more work and more time into how you behave and into your character so that you can live a better life. Because, I don't know about you, but all of the times I have made poor life choices, I've looked all right. But it, that wasn't the issue. That wasn't, in fact, maybe for some cases, this certainly wasn't for me, but may, maybe for you, the reason you got into some trouble, the, amazing you made, the, the reason you made some perhaps poor life choices is because you looked too good. And you found somebody else who looked too good. And there was more work put into what they saw in the mirror than actually what they had probably going on on the inside. If you have this kind of habit now, you will have this habit later. Because remember, wherever you go, there you are. Whatever kind of prep work you put in now is going to be what you're going to have when you get to wherever it is that you're going. James doesn't stop there. Whoever, he gives us the flip side. So if you look, if you listen, if you come to church, if you're reading your Bible and you're not doing anything, you're like someone who looks in a mirror, forgets what that looks like. But whoever, and again, that's anybody, whoever looks intently into the perfect law, and this little Greek word that is intently is to stop and stare at and to like bend down and to inquire and to really kind of hone in on what is this? and really pay attention to. Whoever intently looks into the perfect law, that gives freedom. And we don't often combine, combine those two words, law and freedom, doesn't really kind of connect to us. We feel that laws are restrictive. We feel that a law is something to put up a boundary, something that is to stop us from going somewhere. But the perfect law is, is Jesus. And what he taught, and I'm not talking about you know, necessarily the Sermon on the Mount or 
Um, there, there was a law that Jews followed. It was you know, 600-something laws that they followed. And then there was a question that you would always ask a rabbi, you know, of, of, of what is the greatest law? What is the most important? And the answer was always basically the same. Some variation of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the answer that you gave. And so somebody asked that to Jesus. Teacher, what is the most important law? And Jesus said what he was supposed to say. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and. And you could have heard a pin drop because no one had ever said and before. Jesus said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Game changer. And then he went and he took it a step further. And on the night before he's arrested and wrongly accused and then crucified, he gathers his closest and he says, look, I'm going to give you a new commandment. This isn't about the 600 laws. This isn't about two. This is a one. And everything hangs on this. Love each other as I have loved you. That is the perfect law. And everything else, if you try this, next time you go to read the New Testament, read it all with that kind of lens. How is this loving others as Jesus loved me? Let me give you a couple of examples of where this really hurts, but actually is freeing. Money. I was raised, and I'm so, so thankful that I was raised this way, in a household that gave first, saved second, lived on the rest. Where our culture would say, you do it the other way around. When you earn money, you spend it, you live, and if there's any left over, you save it, and if you get guilt tripped into it, or if you get kind of accosted on the street, or maybe at Christmas time, or maybe if there's a big offering at church, whatever you give, if there's any left over from that. But I was raised, and I was taught that the way to do this the way Jesus would love other people because that's what generosity lets you do. It lets you help other people like Jesus would help them. It is a giving of oneself. You give first, you save second, you live on the rest. And it's easy to start that habit when you're not earning very much. So when I was earning $6.86 at Countdown, and that's what minimum wage was when I was 15, and that sounds so ridiculous to say now, $6.86, I was giving a little bit of that to church and to a couple of charities and then I was saving some, and then I would live on what was left. And that made it easier that when I started earning full-time, all the percentages stayed the same, but all the dollar values went up. I was able to give away more. I was able to live more generously. I was able to save up more. I was able to have a better kind of lifestyle because I was earning more money. But the priorities were always the same. Give first, save second, live on the rest. And it's given me financial freedom because I am largely debt-free. And I, my wife and I own our house because we have both lived like this. We have had this idea in our head that the money we earn is not just for us, but it is we are to be stewards of the money that we have been blessed with. So we give first, we save second, and we live on the rest. The other one that is freeing yet feels restrictive when we think about the law is around the idea of sex and sexual purity. Because how can you have multiple sexual partners, how can you be so loose with sex and still kind of say that I'm going to love others as Christ Jesus loved me? Because if you are going to look at somebody else and say that I'm just going to use you for my own pleasure, how is that loving them like Christ would love them? I don't think those two connect. And, and then, you know, that might be difficult to hear, but I think this is how we're supposed to apply this kind of stuff to our life. If we're going to really be followers of Jesus, if you really want to be someone who's not just looking at a mirror and then walking away and not making any sort of change in your life, but if you want to start applying this, 
you really got to start thinking about it. What would it look like for me to live in all sorts of areas? What about forgiveness? That's another one. Forgiveness, you know, we have to forgive because Jesus forgave us. God, through Christ, forgave us. But forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness doesn't feel freeing. Forgiveness feels like it's, you know, just letting somebody off the hook. I don't get payback. I don't get the revenge that I feel like I deserve. Where's the justice in that? But actually, you ask someone who has had to forgive someone or who has been forgiven, talk about freedom. Talk about freedom. Here's why these are really important. If you set these habits up now, if you do what the book says to do, if you do what Jesus says to do, and again, I think it's more important that you do it because Jesus said to do it, not because it's in the Bible, but because Jesus said to do it, you will carry this with you forever because the seasons of life are connected and wherever you go, there you are. If you could start this now, you will know that the seasons will just flow into the next one. Being able to be good with money when you are young is going to set you up for being able to be really good with money later on. And you can talk to so many people who have been following Jesus and have been living like that for ages, and they will tell you not once have they ever worried about money because they have given first, they have saved second, and they have lived on the rest. And not once have they made any sort of regrettable choices in, when, when, when it comes to sex, when it comes to relationships, because they have always decided right from when they were teenagers that I'm going to treat others as Christ would have me treat them. Not as I would want them to be treated or as I would want them to treat me back, but I'm going to put the Jesus filter on first. I'm going to love them the way Christ would have me love them. So here is the whole verse from James. Whoever looks intently, puts so much focus, so much energy into looking at the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard or not forgetting what they've read or not forgetting what they were there at church on Sunday night and they heard said out loud, but actually doing it, there's the promise. They will be blessed in what they do. And that's not to say that they'll be blessed in that if you are good with money, then God will you know, bless you with riches upon riches upon riches. That's not what this means. Blessed just means a, a, a sense of, of happiness, a sense of a, a fulfillment, probably a better word. Like you will feel content. You will feel fulfilled in all that you do because you know that you are living the best possible way. I think this is the best way to set you up for success, to prepare for change to prepare for whatever is next. Again, because if you can set this up now, you will carry this with you later. Wherever you go, there you will be, and you will be better for it. So if you are in the midst of transition, I think you could set this up now, and hopefully that carries you through transition. But if you are lucky enough to not really be in a transition set at the moment, you are kind of stable, everything seems pretty good, you can see something that's coming ahead of you, and it's a few months away, what if you took some time to really think about this, to really reflect on, being, on what it would look like for you to actually do what Jesus taught to do? The habit of doing makes you happy. The habit of doing makes you blessed. There is personal fulfillment. Just like when you look in the mirror first thing in the morning and you put on the makeup and you brush your teeth and you brush your hair and you go on that, you sort of step back and you go, that was an excellent job. I look good today. I have to say that very quietly because I get up at four o'clock in the morning and I can't celebrate how good I look that early, that loudly. But you do, right? There is a sense of satisfaction. You walk out with confidence knowing, yeah, the outfit is on point. These jeans match these shoes. 
and I feel good about that. I'm wearing socks that match today. Yes, I'm not. But you feel a sense of satisfaction knowing that you've looked in a mirror and you have reacted accordingly. And so would be the same if you looked at what the Bible says or what Jesus taught and reacted accordingly. My biggest regrets, and I think your biggest regrets, are all tied, all associated with hearing and not doing. You sit here and you hear sermon after sermon on how to live a better life, on how following what Jesus would say will make your life better, and you could walk out on Monday and you could do absolutely nothing differently. But what kind of life would you lead if you lived out this stuff for real the other 160 hours in a week? Amazing what kind of life you could have. If you become a doer now, that is, I think, the best preparation for being a doer later. Who you are now, wherever you go, when you get to wherever it is that you are going, there you'll be. And I think you'll be set up better for it. I think that's what James would say. Which probably means if you aren't doing now, you probably won't do later. This wasn't just James who said it, his older brother said it first because Jesus is kind of smart like that. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he did his whole great preach thing, therefore, everyone who hears or reads or goes to church and listens to a sermon on these words of mine and puts them into practice. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you know the part that's coming next. So you can probably sing the song and do the hand actions. Is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the floods came up. Rain came. You guys didn't know that song? You know that song? The streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house because the storms of life happen. Life is subject to change and there is nothing you can do to stop that. Yet, it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. If you are a doer now, you will be a doer later. If you are doing what Jesus taught now, if you can start those habits now, and it's not too late, you know, it's not like you have to be under the age of 30 for this to work, and sorry if you've clicked over that age bracket and, and all the best. No, you can set this up, a doer now, because there's always going to be a what's next. There's always going to be a season of change or a transition that's coming towards you. Be a doer now, you will be a doer later. So here's what I would love you to do in the last few minutes that we have together. And we're just going to do this sort of, you know, quietly, you on your own. But I have two questions that I want to put out to you. What are you doing now that you know you shouldn't be? And then the flip side of that. What aren't you doing now that you know you ought to be? Those are hard questions. And like I said, I'm not expecting you to yell out an answer or expect to have an answer straight away. But I would love it. And I'm going to allow some time just for you to sit and for you to think. What is it? Run through the sermons that you have heard. Run through the Bible passages that you have read. And what is it in your life that you are currently doing that you know you shouldn't be doing? And what are you not doing that you know your world would be a whole lot better and the next season of transition would be a whole lot easier if you started doing it? So God, would you speak to us, I pray. God, I, I pray the, the same prayer I hear I say every time I, I preach or every time I listen to a message or every time I read your word, God, give me the wisdom to know what I'm supposed to do with what I've just heard or what I've just read, and then give me the courage to actually go ahead and do it. And maybe that prayer doesn't apply to any message as much as it applies to this one. God, with what we have just thought about, the things that we 
are doing that we know we shouldn't be doing, the things that we aren't yet doing that we know we should be doing. God, would you help us to give, would you give us the courage to actually make some life changes? God, they might just be small things. It might just be a regular commitment to give. It might just be a regular commitment to come to church, to make that a priority. God, it might be a big change. It might be ending a relationship that we know is not good for us. It might be rethinking our priorities and what we want out of life. But God, would you give us the wisdom to know that following you is going to be the way through this and then the courage to go ahead and make those changes to prepare us now to be the best version that we could be for whenever we get to wherever we're going. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.